He says, free from attachment, fear, and anger, with mind absorbed in thinking of me and taking refuge in me, many persons in the past were purified by the fire of knowledge and attained me thereby. So we heard last night, Krishna said that his activities and his birth were transcendental, and that who understood that truth, giving up the body, they would not again take birth. So there he was speaking to Arjuna about himself. He's sitting before Arjuna in his dvibhuj, two-armed form, as Parthasarati, the chariot driver of his friend, who's now become his student. And he wants to emphasize now something about his transcendence. He says, while I say to you that my form my birth and my activities are transcendental, and in understanding them, one can transcend birth and death. You may wonder, well, that's good for now, you're here, but what about in the past? So he's speaking about in the past. In the past, when I'm not personally present even, people have undergone the, the methodology for understanding my birth and activities in truth, and they've also achieved the result. they become free from Bita, Raga, Bhaya, Krodha. Bita, done away with attachment, Bhaya, fear, and Krodha, anger. Manmaya, Mamapashrit, their minds fully taking shelter of me as a result of that freedom. Bahavo Jnana Tapasa, many people. Tapasa Jnana. Jnana Tapasa. Bahavo means many. Jnana Tapaso. Jnana means Knowledge and tapa means austerity. Puta madbhavam agata. They attained madbhavam, my nature. Nature like mine means they attained prem. So he's taking it a step further here also. Previous verse he said they became free from birth and death. Here he's saying, who takes up this method of mine, really, of bhakti, jnana tapasa, as we'll explain, means bhakti here. And the result of which is Retiring fear, anger, and attachment. Correspondingly, as that's retired, mam, manmaya, mamupashrita, their minds have the capacity then, freed from these things, to become absorbed in me. And uttamadbhavamagata, they attain brahma. And not just that they become free from birth and death, but they attain prema. So this is a further elucidation on elaboration upon yo-veti-tattvata in the previous verse. Those who know me, veti-tattvata, in truth. So he said there, one who knows me in truth, knows the truth, I should say, about my birth and activities. But then what's the method for knowing the truth about his birth and activities? As we said, it's an easy method yesterday, but easy comparatively, being that we have a natural propensity for love, we have a proclivity, you know, for 
indulging the senses and here's the perfect sense object, the perfect form of beauty and so forth. And he, and, um, he accepts all types of service from our senses. Rishikena, Rishikesha, Selim, Bhakti, This is Bhakti. When the senses, Rishikesha, Rishikena, when the senses become engaged, Rishikesha, Rishikena, in the service of the master of the senses, this is Bhakti. So, it's friendly in that way because we are all sensually oriented. And so he provides the perfect objects, his form, his name, qualities, and so forth. So it's an easy path, but relatively easy. It's nonetheless, it's, it, it requires retiring attachment, fear, anger. So he's, he's going into it a little bit. It's like bhakti, we give this nice explanation. It's very simple. It's very easy. Patram pushpam palam toyam, Krishna says in the ninth chapter, speaking about this way to approach him. Patram pushpam palam toyam. Who doesn't have a patram, a flower? Who doesn't have water? You can't live without water. A leaf. Patram pushpam. A leaf, a flower. Palam fruit, yeah. Okay, flower, leaf, flower, fruit, water, toyam. Patram pushpam falam toyam. A leaf, patram pushpam, a flower, falam, a fruit, toyam, water. He says, one who offers me these things with devotion, I accept them. So the implication at first is this is very easy. I mean, you don't need to be a very big aesthetic. You don't have to have a big brain. You don't have to have a lot of material resources. In order to do to tread the karma marg, you have to have material resources to do big yagyas and so forth, and to trade the uh, gan marg, you've got to have a big intelligence, big brain, penetrating the meaning of all the scriptures and so forth. Yoga has some prerequisite too, but what's the prerequisite here for bhakti? I mean, everybody's got a water. He doesn't say all four of them, any one of them, you can offer to me. With bhakti, and I will accept. He says, Patram pushpam palam toyam yome bhakti prayatati tadaham bhakti uparitam ashnami prayatatmi. He says, I'll eat that leaf. Ashnami, I'll eat the flower. He says, uh, if it's offered to me with bhakti. But twice in this verse, he says bhakti. And so on his face, it looks very simple. He's not asking for anything, Krishna. Only one thing, your heart. Sounds good, but then you think, oh, but heart is everything. <laughs> he wants everything, my whole heart. Whatever, wherever my heart is invested is where I am. The heart is like a, the body is like a chariot and the heart is like the driver. When Mahaprabhu told Ramananda, you stay here and I'm going to Puri, I'll meet you later, Ramananda went anyway and gave up the government service there. Met Mahaprabhu and Puri. Mahaprabhu said, I thought I told you to stay down there. He said, the body is like a chariot, the heart is like the driver. Wherever the heart is, the body must go. Mahaprabhu was a little bit apprehensive about him because he was a government servant and he'd left the service so he could be put in jail by the king. Of course, by this time he had conquered the heart of the king. So what did the king do? Gave him a a raise and a pension. And told him, you just stay here in Puri because it pleases Chaitanya Dev. To have you around, I pay you for it. Don't go. Not that he would go away anyway, but I'm going to pay you double and give you a pension. <laughs> Krishna is asking for nothing but our heart. Krishna has a slight problem. He's the man who has everything, but it's said that he lost his heart to his spirit devotees. They've taken his heart. So that's where we come in. We can offer him our heart. This is the idea. So it's simple. It is simple, relatively simple, but he's really asking for everything. And he'll say it in the next verse, as much as you give, as much as you get, as much as I reciprocate. So it's simple, but relatively simple, but nonetheless, it's a yoga. So it requires retiring raga, attachment, kroda, anger, bhayam, fear. And... These things have been discussed in different ways by the Acharyas. The means to retire these things and thereby, in the context of pursuing prem, doing that, the two things, we get the prem, 
those things are retired and we get prem. We do it in the context of aspiring for prem and those things are retired. The method, if you will, is described here in two words, gyan tapasa. So this doesn't mean gyan in austerity in an ordinary sense. It speaks about the tapa. Tapa means tapa. Brahma heard the sound. Hmm? He went, born on the seat of the lotus from the navel of Narayan. He sought out his own source. Everybody's you know, seeking out their origin. Where did I come from? Maybe that'll tell me something about who I am or what I am. Sourcing, we call it. <laughs> so sourcing ourselves, we are involved in that. And so he, there was no one around to talk to. Except Narayan, he was at the other end of the stem, so to speak. Of the, the lotus is like the umbilical cord of Narayan, is the idea. And Brahma's born on the lotus. And so he, in his infancy, if you will, he looks for his source. And he hears the sound, Taupa, the 16th and the 21st letters of the Sanskrit alphabet, Taupa. And together, put together, he put it together and said, hmm, maybe I should do Taupa. So he did a meditation and austerity. Taupa means austerity, but Taupa means light. Light means knowledge. So austerity and knowledge, really, they start to become synonymous. If you do austerity, you get knowledge. As I've said before, even if you involuntarily have to undergo austerity, let's say against your will, you're arrested and tied up. How will you deal with that? You have to become philosophical. When your senses are even involuntarily restrained, then the mind starts to become active. Of course, if they're too much restrained, you, you, you can't think at all. But basically, when we withdraw from the senses, from the sense objects, to that extent, the internal organ, if you will, the mind, let's start to become more active. So if you're locked up, then you have to philosophize and think about meaning and values and so on and so forth. So, but to speak, if we voluntarily undergo some austerity, we do this in bhakti. And what is that austerity? We call it yukta vairagya. So it means we give up things that are not favorable for bhakti. And that's our austerity. And that constitutes knowledge. So it's bhakti that's being talked about, the kind of bhakti that Brahma underwent. And he came to know the form of Krishna in truth. He came to understand it in truth. That he had the internal vision of Krishna in Gopavesh. Then he got instructions from him, which is the origin of the Bhagavatam, those four verses. So Krishna told him there, when he appeared to him, he said, this tapa is the way the world works, actually. It means, it means swaha, as we say in our mantra, swaha. It means sacrifice. It means giving. So this is the method, if you will, this is the heart of the method, the spirit of the method. And in the context of doing this, then it, which is involved, this, this sacrificing, to hear about Krishna is a sacrifice. You don't hear about other things. You find out, I'm trying to think of Krishna, and I've been hearing all these other things, and all the other things are going around in my head. So this isn't conducive. So I should hear bhajans about Krishna, I should hear talks about Krishna, and so forth. So we come to the temple, where we start paying attention at the temple. And those other things stop going around in our head. And so then we have to take the trouble, and this is how friendly bhakti is. It's friendly, but we have to take the trouble to understand Krishna, the philosophy that underlies that dance or the canvas, philosophical canvas on which the art of his leela is drawn. And in that, we sort out, we have to sort out what's the philosophy, what's not the philosophy, and this from the Chakritakras is there are many misrepresentations of that, and we have to deal with that. There are representations of the philosophy that are based on fear. People are doing bhakti to Krishna out of fear. We see it today, doing out of fear. Fear that they might deviate from Prabhupada. And so they get in, in this kind of like small box, so to speak, that's, uh, that doesn't allow them to really explore the depths of what bhakti is about. I don't want to hear you know, anything else, any other book, you know. So they have this kind of, this. they think it's a safe position, but it's a fear motive. This has to be retired by actually meeting the challenge of what is being said, what it's meant. And then when you hear what it really means, then you go, oh, I'm attached over here. And it's saying, Krishna's saying, I'm over here. So that's an austerity then. We have to let it go of that and, and deal with that. And then there may be anger. 
also in, in the motivation. People out of anger, out of frustration, even. There's bhakti dana. Out of, out, of, out of that, they come up with an idea about it. Then there are also people in the world who are moving out of fear and anger and attachment. And they have various philosophies that arise from that as to how they should conduct themselves and how they'll arrive at happiness. And so one has to take the austerity and cultivate the knowledge, sambandha jnana of bhakti. It's like you cultivate the knowledge in a living way by, by a spirit of sharanagati, surrender, sacrifice, and retire all these other ideas. And it's a little troublesome. Another way to think of it, it causes us, we see our attachments, we see our own fear, we see our own anger, and we retire it. And we also, another way to think of it is, we have to become free from being fearful of those people who say, don't go there. <laughs> don't go to that group over there. You know, that's a, and there may be a place for that too. That, that may be appropriate. We have to sort all that out. And then the people who are attached and the people who are uh, doing bhakti out of anger and so forth, they frustrate us. We have to become free from the frustration that these people cause us. <laughs> also, it's saying. And that means mam upash, mam maya, mam upashrita. That's why I try to keep myself at a distance from all of that and not be frustrated by it. Misrepresentations of bhakti. It's an interesting concept because when Prabhupada first came to America and preached, a fair amount of his preaching was about misrepresentation of bhakti. And he was the only example of bhakti, any kind of bhakti, in the Western world. And Chaitanya bhakti, of course, in particular. But we talk about the Prakrita Sahajiyas and the Mayavadis. Of course, there were some Mayavadis around and so forth. But they're, they're kind of a, not a distortion of devotion, really. But he would talk about distortions of devotion. And we think, oh, yeah, there's some old people in India like that. They do all those kind of things. Yeah. Now we see, you know, as, the, as it goes on, I have my own God brothers who are initiated by Prabhupada preaching Prakrita Sahajism, you know, in a sophisticated way. You know, one, and so are you familiar with him, and so forth, and and, uh, and all other types of, new types of isms. It's like the climate at the time we hear of Bhakti Vinodwa, and there were so many upa, upa sampradayas misrepresenting Chaitanya Mahabhu, the Gorn, and there's Gornagari Bhav, another guy initiated by Prabhupada, now he's a Gornagar Bhav, which, which is, means you think you're going to have paramour love with Chaitanya Mahabhu. It's not that... That's not the teaching. So uh, these are they're, they're sophisticated kind of uh, deviations, if you will, and they're all over the place, and new ones also. To so to sort all this out, and at the same time, they're all devotees, kind of, you know, to some extent, right? So you also have to respect them. So you have to you have to dissect and understand what's wrong with their teaching, and respect them. And to respect them, you have to keep enough distance. That you can say, well, they're chanting. <laughs> you know, they don't have to be in your face. Otherwise, it's difficult to respect them because then they come out with these. So to to be to become free from the anger at them, fear of them, and so forth. So the verse is also saying that. So and that is manmaya mama by the by creating an environment where your mind can become absorbed. Take up the process, tapasa, Mind becomes absorbed. And then you're satisfied in yourself, and you can explain the differences what we, you know, with constructive criticism for the sake of others. And that kind of example goes a long way, rather than entering the fray, so to speak, which is endless and, and misconception. You chalk out, this is what I've done, so if you chalk out your own path and, and, uh, and speak about it in a balanced way with... with um, constructive criticism and and so forth with enough space from it that you can be happily cultivating your your bhakti so this is what we <laughs> what we're Krishna's talking about here something like that point being anyway that it that it, 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 it does require some effort on our part it sounds real simple just understand Krishna's form our birth and activities to be transcendental he said and you'll be free from birth and death he says actually there's a little the way to do that is a fire. You have to enter the fire. Tapa means it means fire. 
and knowledge means fire, light. So you enter the fire of sacrifice. Swaha. We have to. We'll think that we're going to give something to Krishna, and if we go further, we understand. After time, we realize it's me that has to be given, not something that I have, but me. I have. To, I'm to be sacrificed on the altar. We can give our. This will come in this chapter too. We can give our possessions. That's one kind of sacrifice. Sacrificing the very self. Mm-hmm. This is required, and and to the extreme. It's like when we do the homa, the yogya, fire yogya initiation. People putting in bananas and fruits and stuff like that. The idea is that you, this fire is being now. You're throwing all of your desires and, and other plans into the fire that come out with. Uh, only Krishna's plan in mind under good guidance. It's an easy path, but comparatively easy. It will take all that you have in your whole heart. It's not so hard because Krishna is attractive, so he charms the heart. <laughs> Any question? What's the time? 7.55. Yeah. Hey, Bhumash, we were saying that we have to like overcome the like, anger and frustration that we feel for the people who like have misconceptions and stuff. But like where does it where where can you pick it up again? Because it's obvious that these big preachers are very heavy, like say like Baptism Sarasthakur. He was like angry at those people. <laughs> so where does it change into like what happens when you can actually become angry again? Well, there's one thing is to lose one's temper and one, another thing is to use one's temper. So when manmaya, mamapashrita, when your mind is absorbed in Krishna, then you can use your temper like Hanuman mm-hmm. to chastise Ram and so forth, like Bhakti Siddhanta to roar, like he was sometimes called the Sringa Guru, the Lion Guru, to roar against misconceptions, declared a totalitarian war against all other religious conceptions, short of what Mahaprabhu came to give, because he actually felt People have the chance to get what Mahaprabhu came to give, and they're being cheated by so many other fireflies in the nights when the moon of Chaitanya, Gaur Chandra, has appeared. So, and the answer is to the extent we're absorbed in Krishna consciousness, we can utilize all of our sentiments and emotions in a spiritual way. And also it means, you know, it's not like a preoccupation, but so to speak. The occasion arises, you know what to say, and you roar like a lion and say it, and and so forth. But your but your preoccupation is somewhere else. Manmaya, Mama Pashrita. But if it comes up and touches a nerve, and you're ready to go, and and Virudapa Siddhanta Dvanta Harane, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthaku is called Rupanuga Virudapa Siddhanta Dvanta Harane. That Siddhanta that was contrary to the teachings of Rupa Goswami, he would become Virudha, very angry at that. He couldn't tolerate that. Out of love, you know, he was, Bhakti, Bhakti Kshita Dev Goswami said once that he was speaking, Bhakti said, I've been pounding his fist on the table and about misconception and so forth. It was rampant and his face was becoming flushed and showing anger and so some of the devotees afterwards said, Guru Maharaj is getting a little angry, not good. You know, Guru Maharaj should not become angry. And Sri Dharma said, no, you don't understand. Tonight we saw the meaning of lotus face. His face became pink like a lotus. So his inner heart was soft. Out of compassion, he's like a parent will chastise the child. And outwardly he's showing disdain for the world and worldly conceptions. But inside, he has a heart that's soft. He's giving bhakti. So, he said, lotus face. His anger, in other words, his blushing and so forth, it's coming from a soft heart. So, this is a dynamic idea of a soft heart. You would think a soft heart will never criticize anybody, kind of thing. And there's a place for that. But there's a place for criticizing for the sake of helping people beyond misconception. That takes a big heart. That requires taking some trouble. Wading into waters that aren't really, in a way, that would not appear very conducive to bhajan and so forth. But it's a kind of kirtan, actually. This was his idea. It was a kind of kirtan. 
forcefully preaching the message of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. It had great potential for absorbing the mind too, so there may be some place for that, preaching out about misconception for the sake of absorbing one's mind in Krishna consciousness. Another question? Shri-guri-vashna-gurparamparakri-jai Srimad-bhagavad-gita-ki-jai Shri-sri-krishna-arjuna-ki-jai Welcome. Good evening, everyone. We're discussing from Bhagavad-gita, chapter 4, verse 11 tonight. One of the more famous verses. Krishna says, Jai jatamam prapadyam te tamstatayeva pajamiham he says that, well, he has been saying, to give it a context, he has been saying that the nature of his form, his activities, appearance in this world are different than that of others. They're dibyam, transcendental, and they're inherently spiritually powerful such that if you take the method or means to understand them appropriately, you will become free from karma, cycle, birth and death. You will attain, he said, brain, love for me. And this then discussion, description of himself was prompted by the questioning of Arjun. So, you know, it's not really very becoming to just boast about yourself. But he was asked by Arjun something about his nature because he had told at the beginning of the chapter that the yoga that I'm teaching you about is as old as the sun. And I am as well. I taught it a long, long, long time ago at the dawn of the, the creation. And I'm teaching it again, that same thing teaching to you now. It's been around for a long time. It's been handed down in this way from teacher to to student who becomes teacher, to student, and so forth in lineage. And by the influence of time, sometimes it becomes obscured. Of course, Krishna is time, so he obscures it that he might shed light on one of his devotees who then brings it to light. He takes pleasure in that and resurrects it, so to speak, from the misconception that it may fall into. People understand not always, or completely, or wrongly, then they go off and misrepresent and so forth. So this happens. So he says, I renew the teachings again and again. And I'm giving it to you, Arjun, because you're my devotee and my friend. You're my devotee means you're my servant, so you do whatever I say, but I'm, you're also my friend, so you can ask me questions as well. We don't ask the master questions, we just say yes. But if we have a little bit borders on friendship, then we can question, some intimacy there is required so, between student and the teacher. So then all of this for the purpose of securing the attention of Arjun, the faith of Arjun. After all, he's speaking about this teaching and he's saying, this isn't something I just made up today. This has been around for a long time. So because it has such a history, one will think, well, it's been around that long. I guess it's time-tested and uh, has more credibility because of its uh, endurance. We tend to think that a thing has credibility to the measure of its endurance. That's why we think we have credibility, because we endure despite changing of bodies and dispositions and so on and so forth. We have a sense of that at any rate. But in the context of, as I say, trying to further secure Arjuna's attention and his faith in what he's 
talking about, he creates a doubt also because he told Arjuna, I spoke this to the sun god millions of years ago, and now I'm speaking it to you. And Arjuna's thinking, well, how could you be there and then you're here speaking it to me and you're my friend and you're driving my chariot. It seems like, you know, and you taught it to the gods. Gods don't take lessons from humans and you're just like my human friend as you're appearing here. So that seems odd and your form, if you were back then, it would have been in a different form, in a different body. And he gives Krishna then through his inquiry, the opportunity to begin, as I say, to speak about himself, about his omnipotence and his eternality and the difference between himself and Arjuna. Arjuna represents us. This chapter is entitled Gyan Yoga, the yoga of Gyan, of knowledge. The knowledge that's talked about here in the very beginning, interestingly enough, is the knowledge of the difference between Bhagawan and ourselves. Now, the chapter will go on to speak of a likeness between ourselves and Bhagwan also. He's consciousness and we are consciousness rather than matter. But it begins by describing a difference. And there's enough difference and enough likeness for there to be love because we need both those things. We need difference and we need oneness to have reciprocal dealings, to unite with another in heart and so forth. So this is the kind of knowledge that he gives here. And then he goes on to stress in this chapter the very idea, as I say, that we have a likeness to the Absolute in that we are consciousness and the Godhead is consciousness as opposed to being matter as we seem to think we are or we feel limited by due to identification with matter. So this is kind of a beginning step then in spiritual life. The last chapter talked about how to move in the world in a, in a sacrificing way that this ingress of wisdom would come within our hearts and we would know the difference between ourselves and matter and then what prospect lies before us, understanding ourselves to be consciousness, not matter, to be an enduring unit of, of consciousness. So the more, of course, builds up here as we um, go on through the, through the chapters and especially in the middle six chapters, and there's a, this, is, this section here is a prelude, in a sense, to that, because here Krishna's talking about himself. Mostly in these early chapters, he's talking about us, what we are and what we are not, how we are consciousness rather than matter and so forth. In the middle six chapters, after talking primarily about us, he's going to talk about himself. The same famous Upanishadic dictum, you may know, tattvam asi, tattvam asi. You are that. So he's talked about you or us. Now he's going to talk about that. And in what way we are that. Better translation would be, we are his. So we are, we are one in that way. We belong in terms of a unity of will. To become one in will. So to do the bidding of the God, if you will. So this little section here, as they say, about avatar tattva, about the nature of the descent of God, is a prelude to the whole middle section where all the theology is developed and Krishna speaks more about his nature. This is one of the things that Indian sacred texts and the different forms of Vedanta excel in, and that is what the nature of the Absolute. In the Western revelation of, for example, Christianity, or Islam, or the Jewish tradition, there's a pretty good argument for the existence of God. Of course, we'll only convince the faithful, but still it's a pretty good, well-reasoned argument for the existence of God. But as for the very nature of the Absolute, then Indian theology and Vedanta seems to excel in this, and Gaudiya Vedanta in particular. So... And this is a prelude to some of that discussion that goes on in the middle six chapters. Krishna's talking about himself, the nature of the perfect object of love. And he's given the underlying kind of philosophy on which the kind of the, the philosophical canvas on which the art of his dancing is painted. He says, you should know, he said here, you should know my birth and my activities to be transcendental. And if you know them in truth, then you will transcend material existence. 
But to know in truth, he says, this requires gyan tapasa, some, some devotion. It's not, and you will have to retire fear, he said, and anger and attachment and so on. So this is where we've come to. And so to answer the mental question of Arjuna that he perceives ahead of time here, Krishna says this verse, that question being, well, you're talking about how by approaching you through bhakti, one can know you in truth and as a result of that, develop prem. But people approach you in different ways. Some people don't approach you in that way. They approach you for material acquisition, give us our daily bread, or for mukti only, uh, two examples, um, or, or for siddhis, for example, for powers. There are people like that. Uh, and so what, what about them, he, he wonders. So Krishna says this verse, he says, jejatamam prapadyante, that prapadyante mam, unto me, yea, all of them, Dijitamam prapadyante tamstataiva bhajami hum. As they bhajami aham, as they approach me in surrender, all persons, then I reciprocate with them in kind. So if they approach me for things, I give them things, a trifling for me. If they approach me for mukti, I retire them into the light. If they approach me for siddhis, I make them powerful. If they approach me for atheism, I give them the knowledge by which they can make sense to themselves, convince themselves and others like them. He says, everybody follows me in all respects. There's only my path, but people tread it a little bit differently. This is very interesting because the verse says here that while all paths do not lead to the same goal, they are all united nonetheless. My groomers used to say sometimes, there is only Krishna consciousness, just like there is only like sun, shine. All shine comes from the sun, whether it be direct or indirect, through electricity, sun creating the brain, you know, evaporating the water and the lightning and so forth. So directly or indirectly. So he says all consciousness is Krishna consciousness. This is pretty, pretty much what this verse is saying. Everyone's conscious of Krishna to one extent or another. And so they all follow his path. We are all conscious entities, units of consciousness, and we are all connected with our conscious source. We pursue our source directly. We pursue it indirectly. We are all actually sourcing ourselves, so to speak, from the time of our birth. Where did I come from? What am I about? And so forth. We get the genealogical table and whatnot, different ways to try to understand our ourselves, study the genes of our um, ancestors or parents and, and so on. So we may look in relation to matter or we may look in relation to consciousness. Matter is only a reflection of that consciousness, a shadow of the light. So in any direction we go, whether it be a material direction or a spiritual direction, and in that side, there are different nuanced ways to pursue the reality that we are units of consciousness. All of this is about, Krishna says here, following me. So they're all united, but all the paths don't lead to the same place. This is a very significant point because it's often thought all paths lead to the same place, all roads lead to Rome. All spiritual paths are the same, but actually they are very different. If the sadhana is very different, then you, while there may be similarities, still the sadhana is very different. We can understand that the sadhya, the goal will be very different as well. Let me give you an example here. Three people may approach me. Let's say I'm a wealthy man, and three people approach me. I'm not, so... Three people may approach me. Then what is wealth? That's another question. So three people approach me and each one has something in mind. First person approaches me because he knows I'm wealthy. And so he comes and offers praise and 
um, offers his services and so forth. But I'm not stupid, so I can detect he wants what I have. He's here really for negotiation. He wants a business transaction. He wants to serve on his face, it appears like, but actually he wants something in return. He knows I have money. So I'm going to reciprocate with that person in a particular way. He has a particular approach to me, and I'm going to respond accordingly. Next person comes, and he sees I've got a lot of wealth, and with wealth comes power, and so he wants my power. He wants the knowledge by which I got that wealth. He thinks that's more valuable. Then I can get all that wealth myself, rather than come and just get something from him. I can get everything. I can become him, maybe better if I get his knowledge. So I also can detect this, so I think, okay, that's what you want, you take it, go ahead, get more than I have, I don't care. So I send them, I open the door to them, I receive them, and I send them both away. And I give them something. I give them some of my acquisition, my acquired possession, I give them the other, my knowledge. Third person comes and says, what? I want just to be with you. And uh, do you want anything? I have to test him then. Do you want it? No. And uh, he's not concerned about acquiring my, uh, my wealth or my knowledge. He just wants to serve me. He just likes to be with me. So I don't send him away. I keep him around. So he stays in the house with me. So they're all on my path. They're all following me. But they have a different uh, desire. They have a different idea of what it means to relate with the Absolute, what can be derived from that. And when we look at the different paths and so forth, we can then understand the path, the sadhana, corresponds with the sadhya. Now, it's not up to us to fault one or the other, but we can look at it objectively and then decide which, which one strikes us the best. Obviously, some people, it strikes them that they should pursue the Absolute for material acquisition. Some think they should pursue the Absolute for knowledge and thereby mukti. Some people think they should approach the Absolute for love because the Absolute is lovable and conceive of themselves as lovers by nature and so forth. You know, you're going to decide which is best and everybody has a different feeling about it, so let them go. This is what Krishna's saying here. Now, of course, <laughs> we think that loving him is the best. It seems you know, pretty obvious, but it's not obvious to everybody. <laughs> That's why there are different paths and uh, people have those types of uh, aspirations. I'm simplifying the whole thing, obviously, but it's a reality. And they can philosophize a way that there is anything as such as bhakti, and therefore I'm only pursuing this and so on and so forth. And there are people in the Vedic times, the karma marg, people would fight with the gamarg people. There's whole dissertations about that. Why the truth of the revelation is to do good works and get good material reactions, accrue good karma. And the gyan portion is saying, this karma is good or bad is a problem. And that makes sense to us, we're spiritually oriented, but the people on the karma mark will argue against that. So they're arguing, what, what's come down from above, and what does it mean? And it hits people in different ways, and so there are different paths, different religions and so forth. We're basically breaking them up here into a religion of the heart, a religion of the head and a religion of the body, so to speak. Bhakti, Gyan, Karma. So there may be many nuances within that and subsets and so on and so forth. The Krishna says, they're all following me. And as they do, in the way that they do, I reciprocate accordingly. Now this is a nice verse and it's a famous verse for a number of reasons, but one of them is that when we follow this book, the Bhagavad Gita, into its sequel, the Bhagavatam. The Bhagavad Gita is about a 45-minute conversation between Krishna and Arjuna. And Ar Krishna is about 125 years old at the time, although he appears as he was only 16. So that's pretty extraordinary what he said in 45 minutes. The Bhagavatam then details many other activities about Krishna, his leelas and so forth. So it's a fascinating book. It's trying to think how many times bigger than the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is 700 verses and the Bhagavatam is 18,000 verses. So quite a bit bigger. And beautiful poetic book, narrative of Krishna Leela and the underlying philosophy, the ground of it and so forth. And there, in the zenith, the apex 
of the book, speaking of the story of Krishna. This is like one page in it here, the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna is in the pastoral setting of Vrindavan, and he has played his flute in the night, and it's been building up. He's developed an affection for these milk maidens, and they for him. And it reaches a certain point. He plays his flute at night and during the harvest moon and they come out of their houses and they forgo everything. They forgo the milk that's boiling on the stove and the, the animals that need to be fed and the babies that are crying and the fact that their reputation might be lost for running off in the middle of the night with a young boy. And none of them knows that anybody else is going don't wait for anybody else to go. They hear the flute, and they go. When they get there, they find, oh, you came too, and you heard it also. And they form some camaraderie with one another. And so they begin a discussion with Krishna, and it turns into a, a spiritual kind of consummation of their relationship. And in the context of that, Krishna suddenly disappears. And so they're looking all over for him. Where did he go? They're going and asking the trees, and they see the trees are a little bent over, and they say, Oh, you must have more love for Krishna than us because you're bending over and he must have passed through here. And they see his footprints on the ground and they, they pay their respect to the ground. They say, oh, earth, you're so pious. Krishna left us, but wherever he is, his footprints are on you. So we worship you. Please show us where to find Krishna. And so their own bhava, their own ecstasy, they're projecting on all things, animate, inanimate, moving and non-moving, and saying, you have more love for Krishna than I do. They see the whole world is speaking to them about love of Krishna. And they're feeling that the whole world, everything is moving for and out of love for Krishna, except for us. That's how they're feeling. And of course, it's kind of the opposite, in a sense. It's true what they say. They're having a vision. Everything's moving according to the will of God, except for me. But it's a very high vision. In reality, they're moving according to the will of God in a very deep way, and it's causing them to see the world in a way that ordinary people who don't move according to the will of God can't see, and therefore they're not peaceful and so forth. We'll speak of ecstatic, or blissful. So it's a very interesting um, section, and one thing leads to another, and they go to the banks of the Jamuna River, and there they begin to sing about Krishna. And Krishna's meanwhile hiding behind a tree, and he's observing them. He disappeared for them to see that what would happen to them, to the measure of their love. And what he saw was extraordinary. He saw the measure of their love exceeded any experience of love that he himself ever had experienced. And he was considered himself to be the king of love. So he had an existential crisis of sorts. Who am I and who are they? What, what is their position? I'm the king of love and they have a love that I have never seen the measure of before. So he comes out from behind the tree. They're singing, they're chanting. See, this chanting is powerful. It brings Krishna out from behind the tree. He's hiding from us, but he comes out. And it's funny because when we first moved here and we were camping here for a few months and the first full moon, we were sleeping out here and under the and so forth. And I woke up to the call of nature and there was bright full moon, it was like uh, June and so forth, and I looked up and I thought, Krishna must be behind one of these trees here, this is <laughs> an incredible place. So it is, but he'll come out by the chanting, he'll come out from his hiding, he cannot resist that. So he came out and he said something to these gopis, he said to them, you know, more or less he said, I said in the Bhagavad Gita, of course, these are all eternal texts and so forth. So he says, I said in the Bhagavad Gita, it said there that as people approach me and give of themselves to me, I reciprocate accordingly. Everyone's giving themselves all the time to something. But the things don't endure, so they don't reciprocate in kind, and we move our attention to another thing, to another thing, to another person. We are looking to find that object in which we can repose ourselves such that we will be fulfilled. Our love expands kind of like a beam of light. You know, it just kind of goes and goes. So we need to repose it in something that has depth and the capacity to reciprocate in kind. So Krishna is here. We are a spark of consciousness 
Krishna represents the entirety, the, the whole, the fire of consciousness. So you would think his statement here is good. I'm the fire, you're the spark. However much you want to approach me, I can reciprocate. However hot you want to get, you know, I'm hot, he says. So you can enter into the fire here and you'll be consumed. You know? If you want to compare him to water and we're a drop, then, you know, he's oceanic. He can drown us entirely. So his statement seems pretty safe here. In other words, as much as you approach, I can reciprocate. He's talking about the idea that if people are going to sacrifice in life and give, there has to be an object to which they can give. And if they want to give without limitation, that object has to be a special kind of object that they give to. And if I give unlimitedly to you, but you disappear, you die, and then what, what am I? I'm stuck there. So, so if life is about giving, and the more you give, the more you're living, there has to be an object that's on the receiving end. And the perfection of that object in the receiving end is, of course, that by receiving, what it does in the context of receiving is rearrange that energy and distribute it, like the stomach rearranges the energy that we put into into it and distributes it to the whole body. So the center actually nourishes the circumference. And there is a circumference because there is a center. And so we're orbiting around it. We're not aware of it. We're kind of on, living on the circumference. If we turn our attention to the center, then we, we thrive. So his statement here seems pretty safe. He says, as much as you want to give, come and I'll give back. But what he saw was that these gopis headed by Radha, who personify the, the idea of unqualified, how you say in the modern terms, unconditional love, well-reasoned unconditional love, and he's astounded by it. And he says to them, He says, I've never seen anything like this. I'm actually taken and conquered by your love. You have exhausted my capacity to reciprocate. So this is an instance in which the spark approaches the fire in such a way that the fire feels... It's, it's inconceivable. The fire feels conquered by the spark. Krishna says, I said this in the Bhagavad Gita that I could reciprocate in kind, but I hear you've exhausted my supply. You have to be satisfied with who you are, with what you are. Your bhakti, he said, that's the highest thing. I worship that. I touch the feet of your bhakti. So it's a point, a theological point here that's being made that the absolute is drawn to bhakti, and we are drawn to bhakti. So bhakti is like the channel that connects the drop with the ocean, and it's venerable by both, by us and by, by Bhagwan also. You know, love is supreme is kind of the, the idea, but of course this is again well-reasoned love. So there's a, a pitch, a tenor, a measure, a color of temper of love Bhakti that can reach the point that it completely conquers the Absolute. And that's what Krishna means. Krishna means the Absolute putting himself in the hands of these, for example, milkmaidens. So Krishna says something like this to them. Well, you know, here, look, you've given everything to me. You know, you've given up everything for me. And I can't give up everything. I have to herd cows. I have my duties. I can't give them up. I have my friends, I have my parents, I have many kinds of devotees in all different groups, and they all love me, and I have to give attention to them. But you give up everything only for me. So I can't do that. I can't do the same thing as you've done. I'm committed to so many other devotees. So all I can say to you is that your love is supreme, and you have to be satisfied with that. Now, of course... Another way that Sanatana Goswami has given to, to think about it is that you have to be satisfied with your own saintliness, he said. That's the supreme thing. Or I have to satisfy you by sending a saint to serve you. So I have to send some devotees to, some of my devotees to serve you. I have to send some of my coward friends over to be your 
your servant. Maybe then I'll make up for my, my shortcomings, something like that. So the significance further here, of course, for us in our Gaudiya tradition is what? That this verse of the Bhagavad Gita speaks about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu because this point in Krishna Leela where bhakti is being extolled, the virtues of it, over that of Krishna, being like that which Krishna himself worships, if you will. This is the point when Krishna comes out from behind that tree and he sees their love, he thinks, that, I want to experience that. Now Krishna is the object of love, the Vishayalambana. The gopis exemplify the, the personification of the love. You have the object of love and then you have the love itself. And the two to go, going together, that makes rasa, rasananda. So his position, he's the object of love. Their position is they're the personification of the vessel of that love. In his own position, he has to change from this position to their position to taste their love. Krishna is saying that love of the devotees have for me, I want to have that love. He's saying the position of the devotee is the best position to have. This is Krishna's perspective. A lot of people want to be God. Krishna wants to be a devotee. He says, that's better. That's a better position, he says. So the spiritual, eternal, if you will, genesis then of this idea of Chaitanya, who is Krishna trying to taste Radha's love for him. So he comes in the world as a devotee of himself in, and tries to reach the heights, if you will, of the devotion of Radha and taste that. So this verse speaks to us in this way. That's a long further topic about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. As I said before, if you go very... Chaitanya gives love of Radha and Krishna. This, he, he was an extraordinary avatar of... And he's Krishna in the mood of Radha. So he's disguised with her color. His dark color becomes golden like hers. And he's falling in a swoon of love of God just at the mention of Krishna's name extraordinary spiritual like personification of divine love overflowing everywhere and teaching everywhere about the exalted nature of Radha Krishna Leela. And here's in his Leela, if you will, he's only, if you focus on Chaitanya Leela, you get Radha and Krishna. That's what it's all about. And he's giving it out by the very, being the very personification of love of Radha and Krishna. So if you want to find out love for love of Radha and Krishna, this is where to go, to him. Now, you go to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, so Chaitanya is giving the gift. So first the giver, then the gift. So we have such regard for the giver. So it looks as though Chaitanya Lila is giving out Krishna Lila, right? And so then you get Krishna Lila. Then you go deep inside Krishna Lila. And then you take part in this Lila that I was describing. Krishna comes out from behind the tree, and there... Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was again peering. It goes in a circle like this. So as deep as you go into Krishna Lila, you find Chaitanya Lila. As deep as you go into Chaitanya Lila, you find Krishna Lila. And so there's the corresponding realm, Gokul and Svetadvip. Svetadvipam tamaham golokam itiyam. This is very rarely known. That place, he said, Golok and Svetadvip. It's the two sides. It's where that, where... Bhagavan is the ashraya, and then he's the Vishayalamba, and when he tastes uh, ashraya, he's rasa and rasika, fully. That's a big topic. But anyway, it comes here in this important verse. Any question? No. Uh, I was reading in uh, Sri Maharaj's book earlier. He was talking about the circumference versus... The what? He was talking about the circumference... Circumference? Yeah, circumference and the center... Yeah, and he was saying uh, that uh, everywhere center, everywhere's the center, and there is no a, circumference. Right. <laughs> he means that Krishna is everywhere. So, from his perspective, everywhere <laughs> center. <coughs> excuse me, no circumference. It's just another way of his of saying God is everywhere. And we are also in the center, but we don't know it. <laughs> We're also connected to the center, but we don't realize it. Center everywhere, circumference nowhere, infinite everywhere, every atom is infinite. We can talk about it differently. We can say, here's the finite and here's the infinite. And there's a rational, philosophical discussion like that in the context of Gaudiya Vedanta. Or we can talk about it 
infinite everywhere. There's infinity in the atom. Atom is infinite. Every particle is infinite. For Prahlad, where was Krishna? You know the story of Prahlad? Everywhere. So he had that vision. So he's talking about the vision of the Mahabhagavata. Everywhere, circumference, or center. Circumference, nowhere. Nothing's not connected. That's, that's not connected to Krishna. So, that's center everywhere. Another question? So, how long are you here for? Today is Monday? Mm-hmm. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning. Thank you for coming. It's a beautiful place. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So, we'll stop there. Shimad Bhagavad Gita, Gita.